Welcome to Consecrated, a podcast created to uplift the beauty and individuality of the religious vocation and that of the service of the different religious orders. Through interviews with religious brothers, fathers, and sisters, may we encounter the true light that penetrates true consecrated life. Welcome to the Consecrated Podcast. Today we have Father Ben Cameron with us, and he is from the Fathers of Mercy. So let's begin with a Hail Mary in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Father Ben, how long have you been with the Fathers of Mercy? I joined in 1992, so over 31 years. <laughs> that's a that's a nice length of time. It, it is, yes. So uh, a little over, I celebrated 30 years of vowed life of this past summer, and I've been a priest for 26 and a half years. Okay, so you joined the order before um, being ordained. Yes, so I, with the Fathers of Mercy, um, the norm is for men's orders that we join the order go through religious formation, and then part of the, during our religious formation, we start our seminary formation. So we, um, we're we religious first in time before we are ordained priests. Okay. Do you have a fun fact about yourself that you would like to share? Well, I actually first heard my call, or we could say better, ac- more accurately <clears throat> acknowledged hearing my call, In the same town where Jack London wrote his books, way up near the Arctic Circle in Dawson City, Yukon. Okay, so way up there. (laughs) Way up there. Yeah. Hey, so what about this order drew you? Like, how did you end up with the Fathers of Mercy? Um, Did you visit any other orders? What about the Fathers of Mercy brought you here? Well, uh, first of all, when I first started hearing the call to the priesthood, I um, read something from Pope John Paul II, a Wednesday audience address, about how the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience directly contradict the false values of the world. The world says that money, um, sexual pleasure, and power are the most important things, and the gospel values tell us the opposite. So, I knew at that moment that if I became a priest, I would be in a religious order. So I I looked only at orders. I wrote to nine orders. And um, there were about four that really interested me. And um, I had actually been to Christendom College with a couple members of the Fathers of Mercy. So I knew of the order. Um, But what attracted me was um, very Eucharistic, very Marian, uh, we're consecrated to the Blessed Mother. In fact, we renew our consecration every year on the same date that I made my consecration, December 8th, um, which I made my consecration in college. Um, so the order and all of us as individuals are consecrated to Mary as the Immaculate Conception. 
Um, but really it was the um, parish mission apostolate. And I'd never experienced a mission, but I liked the idea of a mission, which is a retreat for a whole parish. And it just, a re-evangelization and it just attracted me. And I, so I visited and loved it. And then I went and visited another community in Chicago and um, between the differences and between the gunshots going off all through the night in Chicago, I, I just felt really attracted to the Fathers of Mercy, but it was mainly that everything was being compared to the Fathers of Mercy. So um, decided to give it a shot and they've been stuck with me ever since. That's awesome. So um, what were, what were the other orders that you um, considered? What were the four, like your top four? Um, well, after the Fathers of Mercy, the Norbertines in California, St. Michael's Abbey, um, they were definitely up there, but I couldn't afford the plane ticket to go out for the visit at that point. Um, and I also visited the conventional Franciscans in Chicago that run Marytown. Okay. Uh, and they're the ones that are related to St. Maximine Colby, same order that he belonged to. Um, and the Dominicans. I looked into the Dominicans, um, which I think is kind of funny because the Fathers of Mercy, our charism is very much like that of the Dominicans. And I tell my Dominican friends that we're blue collar Dominicans we do <laughs> type of work, but we don't have all those fancy letters after our names of advanced degrees. That's funny. So what what kind of flavor, what quirkiness um does it take to be successful in your community because i know um all kinds of orders have just their little thing that um that really makes them a community i i don't know if i would call it quirkiness as much as the fathers of mercy we're we're all unique um, some orders you meet one and you think you, you kind of feel like you've met all of them. We're not that way. Um, but you have to be a guy who is willing to, uh, who loves being in community, but also is perfectly happy to be out by himself, um, doing the mission work, um, and at peace with both, you know, a, a lot of men, um, that go into the priesthood, they, they want to be the stability of the parish or they want to be at a very stable community situation um, or they're joining something where they're going to be on their own all the time. And we have to be able to be on our own and we have to be able to be in community and go back and forth seamlessly. And um, so that's, I don't know if it's a quirkiness, but, but that is um, something about us that sets us apart from most men's orders. Okay. So do you guys, do you take religious names as the fathers of mercy? Is that something that's, um, something that's done in your order? We, we don't. Um, and that's okay. really because we came out of the diocesan clergy, our founder and all of our early members were diocesan priests and so they just kept their names. And so we just use our baptismal names. 
um, we are mostly called, most of us are called father with our first name. So I'm known as Father Ben. When people say Father Cameron, I kind of wonder where the diocesan priest is who has the same last name as me. <laughs> um, because the old tradition is diocesan priests used father in their last name and religious priests used father in their first name or religious name. Uh, it's not followed that way by a lot of priests today, but most of us still do that. Um, but we've never had a custom in our community of having uh, religious names. And um, sometimes we wonder, some of us wonder if it might be a good idea, because when you have two or three Father Jims and two or three mm -hmm. Father Josephs and two or three Father Johns, well, then it kind of gets a little hard to keep track of who you're talking about. So you get multiple heads turning when the name is when the name is said. <laughs> right. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your, what is the um, Fathers of Mercy habit and what is the significance of the pieces of the habit? Okay. Well, we wear the, um, the black cassock with the Roman collar. And so those are the traditional garb of the diocesan clergy. So that, as we said, we came out of the diocesan clergy. Um, then we also wear um, the cincture, the sash around the waist that hangs uh, uh, down on the left side as well. Um, and that was something that some diocesan clergy use. Um, but what is distinct for us is our badge. And that is a gold and blue, light blue badge um, worn over our heart, left side of our, of our chest. Um, it says Fathers of Mercy 1808, which is the year we were founded. We were founded after the French Revolution. And it shows the um, prodigal son being embraced by his father. And so that is what kind of is the distinctive thing for us. So that the cassock and cincture with the badge. And of course, we wear the collar, obviously, the collar, which symbolizes obedience. Um, so in a certain sense, you could say the cassock itself would represent poverty, the uh, cincture would represent chastity, and the collar would represent obedience. But then the badge would represent our particular charism as fathers of mercy. And then when we are as priests, when, we, when we're ordained, we're given what's called a mission cross, which is a large crucifix that we can hang um, right over our heart. And we use that when we're preaching parish missions and retreats. And so our normal everyday life, we're not walking around with the big cross. Um, but when we're doing our missions and retreats, we've got this big cross. And the children in schools often ask, you know, why do I wear that? And it's like, well, it's a constantly reminder of who the boss is. You know, he's right over my heart. And uh, I also tell people if they don't want to look at me, they can look right at Jesus over my heart, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you had talked a little bit about um, the badge representing um, the charism of the um, Fathers of Mercy. What is that charism? It is ultimately to bring God's mercy to his prodigal sons and daughters. Um, and we do that through the preaching of parish missions, retreats, and other spiritual exercises. And then our second um, apostolate is staffing parishes in rural or neglected areas. So we have a, a parish in Kentucky that uh, is two counties of Kentucky. 
um, and we have a couple priests there, two churches, uh, but it's one parish community. Um, and then we also have a shrine up in Wisconsin, the Shrine of Our Lady of Champion, which is the Marian apparition that was approved a few years ago. The only one in America that's been approved by the church. And um, that's kind of like our mission apostolate in, you know, very missionary work, hearing confessions, preaching. Um, but instead of the priests moving from place to place, the people come to them. And then it's also in a very rural setting. So it's kind of like it bridges our mission apostolate and our um, parish apostolate and puts them together in that, in that shrine. But, but our charism is bringing the mercy of God to his prodigal sons and daughters. And we do it through the preaching apostolate and through the rural or neglected areas apostolate. So we do a, a big emphasis on the sacrament of confession. Um, so we often say we preach to bring people to confession and we hear their confessions to bring them more worthily to the Eucharist. That is beautiful. And I've, I've visited, um, your church and I have noticed that how many confessionals are in your church? We have four confessionals along the left-hand side of the church. And most Sundays there's four priests hearing confessions before mass and then on the right-hand side of the church, we've got a couple of closets that we can turn into additional, additional confessionals, which we do around Divine Mercy Sunday. So usually Divine Mercy Sunday, we've got six priests hearing confessions. Wow. I, I hadn't really thought about the fact that Divine Mercy Sunday is probably like your big feast. It's pretty big for us. Yeah, it's not, you know, an official thing but it is very big for us because the divine we're not based on the divine mercy devotion we predate it um and yet what that devotion is about the revelations our lord gave to saint faustina really are bringing to people's consciousness the truth of the gospel about mercy which is what we are based on we're based on the gospel itself and you know the parable of the prodigal son and then the other gospels of mercy would also be very dear to us Yes. So you had talked a little bit about um, it kind of fit in with um, what you wear for your habit, but what vows do you take? We have the three traditional vows, um, but we put obedience first. So like the Dominicans take only the vow of obedience. We pronounce our vows as obedience, poverty, and chastity. Okay. So what is the significance of putting them in that order? I think it's because obedience is actually the supreme vow in the sense that it is the most interior. Um, poverty has to do with our use of the goods of the world. Chastity has to do with the use of the goods of our body, particular sexuality. Um, obedience is the most interior because it has to do with our will and seeking to conform our will to, to the will of God through living of, the, of our constitutions and um, in obedience to our superiors. Okay. So what does your typical day look like and how does that vary from anybody else in your community? Oh, my day in particular compared to the rest, okay. Um, well, first of all, when we're at our uh, in our in community, we have our kind of framed by our common prayer times, 
Um, so in our community here at the General Lit, um, we start prayers at 6.30 in the morning. We have an hour of prayer together, rosary, meditation, um, the office of lauds or morning prayer, and then we have mass. <clears throat> and then in the afternoon, we have a Eucharistic holy hour with meditation, uh, chaplet of divine mercy, and vespers, evening prayer, and benediction. So we have um, those, and we, always, and we have breakfast and supper together as a community. Um, my day, when I'm, he when I'm home, I'm, it seems like I'm seldom home, so I'm on the road. <laughs> so. But when I'm home, um, I'll do some reading, um, usually take a walk or two, um, you know, just some studying, catching up with things, um, organizing for the missions, getting ready for my next uh, set of missions, sometimes working on new talks. Um, I, I also do Rachel's Vineyard post-abortion retreats. So sometimes I'm or organizing things on that end. Um, you know, there's always things to keep a priest busy, you know, uh, a priest who says he's bored because he's not looking for for the work <laughs> available. Now, when I'm out on the road preaching, um, also, you know, try to have the, find the times that will work in that parish setting for, you know, morning prayer time, evening prayer time, or late afternoon prayer time. Um, but everything kind of gets centered around the schedule of the mission. You know, am I preaching in the morning? Am I doing a mass at noon? I'm almost always doing the mission uh, events in the evening. And then during the day, finding those times for prayer, for study. Um, and for me, I almost always go out and take a long walk. That's an important part of my day. Okay, because you are the master of missions for your community, correct? Uh, no, I was the what we call the mission director, who is the head of the missions um, and uh, would do the scheduling. And I did that for six years. Um, but no, I am uh, just an ordinary missionary priest at this point and enjoy. Okay. <laughs> it is nice to, after you've done something for a while, say, okay, somebody can take over now. Yeah, somebody else is in charge of it now. And, and I'm just getting to spend a lot of time out preaching and um, not having the pressures of administration, which is Good, because most of my priesthood, I've been in administration in some form or another. Yeah. So do all of the priests in your community have a chance to, do they all do parish missions? No, there's some guys who uh, kind of figured out on their own that they weren't really um, suited for it or called to it. Other guys really, um, they tried it, they did it for a while, Um some of the guys have difficulty with, you know, being on the road so much and the irregular schedules. Um, so it, it varies. I'd say that the majority of our priests at this point, we have 29 priests right now in our order. Um, the majority of the priests have done missions at some point. Um, there are eight of us that do it full time now. And there are two others who will go out from their um, other assignments and help out kind of as needed. Um, but it's ultimately the superior of the order, the superior general assigns who's going to be in the mission apostolate, who's going to be in the parish or the shrine. 
and we have some guys who are in chaplaincy work if you know with nursing homes or with uh, chaplains for nuns or for school and things like that so um but most of the men have at least done missions at some point and given it a shot but life on the road is not for everybody amen <laughs> because you are the your monastery is the only monastery for the fathers of mercy in the u.s right well uh we don't call it a monastery we just okay. call it our general house um because we are our founders said we are the um religious that are the furthest from being monks but are still religious so it's more of a kind of a formation house missionary house um but um that being said yeah it is our main house and, but we have the the parish in Glasgow, Kentucky, and we have the Shrine of Our Lady of Champions. So those are the three, what we would call houses of our community, our stable communities. Um, but we are only in the United States at this point. Um, our order almost died out and uh, we survived only in the U.S. And so we've just been still only in the U.S. at this point. Wow. And so I thought I had heard that your general house used to be a Benedictine monastery? It was, yes, it was. Um, back in around 1942, I think it was, um, some Benedictine monks came down from Collegeville, Minnesota, and they founded, it was called St. Mowers, and later on through complicated story, its name got changed to St. Mark's. Um, but they, it was the first interracial monastery in the Southern United States, black and white monks living side by side as equals. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's got a neat history and, uh, but they were only a priory, so they were never a full standing, uh, abbey. And when, after their founder died, um, and they were fairly small in numbers and, and getting up there at age. The abbey they were under said they needed to close up and and go to to other monasteries, and uh, and we were able to buy the property and keep it in the church. So, in our cemetery there are five Benedictine monks and six Fathers of Mercy at this point. So, we we share the, and we the cemetery is called Saint Mark's Cemetery. So, that's interesting. You that um, you were still able to keep. Um, a piece of the history of um, the Benedictines by um, naming your cemetery St. Mark's. Oh yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's a, there's a great tradition here. Um, the, the, the Benedictines are always big on hospitality and we try to, to keep that same spirit of hospitality, you know, and um, there, there's, there's always things that the newer orders like ours, even though we're over 200 years old, we're still newer compared to the Benedictines who are like 1500 years old. Right. Learn from those more ancient orders. Right. So how was the prayer life of the Fathers of Mercy? How was, how did it fit what you were looking for in an order? Well, you know, when I came, I, I came one year out of college and I didn't really know much <laughs> Um, and 
I was actually attracted by the fact that we prayed three rosaries a day. We prayed one at morning prayer, we prayed one at noon, and we prayed one in the evening or at the holy hour. And I thought that was pretty amazing. And um, But we didn't have a whole lot of silent time for prayer, uh, silent meditation prayer. So over time, I'm, so that attracted me at first, but over time I came to realize that our constitutions really wanted us to have more silent meditation. And so at some point after I was ordained, we made some changes and our prayer life reflects better what our constitutions um, say we're to do. So we have more silent meditation time and we pray one rosary together in common. Um, though, you know, a lot of the men, I think, pray a second rosary sometime during the day. Um, some may pray multiple rosaries during the day, you know, but, um, but anyway, so what attracted me is, um, actually not what we do any longer, you know, but I'm much happier with what we do now because it, there's more balance and, and we needed that silent meditation before the Lord, you know, and, um, being present to do our, whether it's the form of Lexio Divina or, you know, Theresian meditation, whatever form each guy chooses to do is there is something lost when you when there that silence is left out it seems everything almost seems more rushed or more there's no like time to find peace just within yeah that's for sure um and i think that's one of the problems and culture today and a lot of people are scared of and probably a lot of young people who are being called may be scared of it we're not used to silence you know and um even when we're being silent we're we have noises that we've become almost unconscious of sometimes i'm walking down a country road and i can actually hear the buzzing of the uh power lines um so you know we don't even have silence when we're out um, along a country road sometimes, whereas people in the past didn't have things like that. They didn't have machinery and electric power, and they had they had more true silence. Um, but a lot of us were, were frightened of silence because I think we're frightened to hear um, our own thoughts and to hear maybe the Lord speaking within our soul. And, uh, but we need that and we're not going to really have as much peace if we don't make that time for silence. So I think it's important for anybody discerning is to make sure that they're, they're actually having time of silence or no music, no podcasts, no TV, no radio, just, just being quiet. Um, and whether that's sitting before the blessed sacrament, which is really good if people have access to, a church that's open or whether it's uh, having a prayer corner in their room or somewhere in their house. Um, but to sit with the word of God, to sit with scripture and to be silent before the Lord and to, to, um, to begin to listen and asking God to help us to silence, even within ourselves to not have to say something all the time, but just to, to listen um, as he's trying to speak to us through through his word, um, you know, through, through the church, through the saints. And even that, I even find that hard. Like if you're, if I'm trying to sit in silence 
and trying to listen my own thoughts and my own needs and my own intentions um, kind of get thrusted um, into my prayer. And it's, it's hard. I'm not going to lie. It's hard to just sit and try to listen. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it takes a lot of work and I've been at it for over 30 years and I still can't say that I'm really good at it. Um, but I think the effort is as important as anything. Um, and I just, I think all of us, um, you know, older, middle-aged, young, we need to have the discipline of trying to set that time. Um, and sometimes though, having a good spiritual book, having the scriptures or having a, a life of a saint or something from a saint, something that will help us to direct our thoughts, um, you know, where we can read just a little bit and then be quiet and just kind of mull over what we're hearing and then allow ourselves to enter into a conversation with God. Um, and conversation, of course, includes sometimes just trying to listen, not talking all the time. Um, so I think that's an, something that's it's very worthwhile and it's important that we make that effort, even if we struggle to do it. I think some people think if I can't pray really well, then why bother? Well, because we should, because we actually need it. Um, and um, ultimately, you know, God will work on us, even if it seems to take years or decades. Yes. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but why was, so your order was established to show Christ's mercy has that has anything like the way it was originally structured changed since your founding um not really um I think the main difference is our founder served as superior for life and uh and like other orders we have elections we have a general chapter every six years and we elect our superior and his council and the other officers um, and the chapter has um, authority and, and it, under, you know, church law and the constitutions, the chapter is the supreme authority. The chapter determines something and sets a path. The, then even the superior is bound to uh, follow that path and, and to, um, to work on those things that the chapter set our priorities. Um, but as far as our actual charism, we were founded to travel all over France and reconvert the French people after the revolution and get people back to the sacraments and, uh, you know, set the, the, the laity on fire with the love of God and to assist the parish priests um, by, um, by our work. Um, you know, that, that everything was doing, we were doing was helping the, the priests and the parishes to be more effective by our preaching ministry. And that's basically the same thing we're doing. Um, back in France in the 1800s, um, a mission would often last, you know, four, six, eight weeks. We would take over an entire city. Um, one church would have the married men's mission and another one would have the married women's mission and the single men and the single women. And 
um, one priest would go preach to the soldiers or the sailors, and another one would go down and try to convert the prostitutes. And I mean, we just took over a city for a period of time. In fact, they used to say that anything less than three weeks was merely a retreat. Well, parish missions today, most parishes want four or five nights. So we're there for a week at the most. Um, we preach the weekend masses, and then we start in either on Sunday night or on Monday, and we preach for four or five nights, and Friday we go to the next place. So that has changed, but a lot of that's because of the culture has changed, you know, and people's attention span. If we told people they were supposed to come to church every night for the next six weeks, I don't think too many people would come. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how did you come, why did you come from France to the U.S.? Well, that's an interesting story. So one of our members had become a bishop uh, in France. His name was Bishop Forben Johnson. And he um, was exiled from his diocese. And the um, bishops of Cincinnati and um, particularly of Louisville, Kentucky, um, were Frenchmen. And I think also the Bishop of Vincennes, Indiana. And they, um, they requested for the Pope, for Bishop Forban Johnson, who was a famous preacher, to be sent over here to do some preaching. So he came and a couple of Fathers of Mercy priests came with him. And after a few years, Bishop Forban Johnson went back to France, but the priests stayed. And so from that time, from 1839, we've always had a presence here in the United States. And then in the... Uh, in 1905, the what was called the Third Revolution, um, we were expelled from France, like a lot of orders were, and um, so we, then we had we had a lot of Americans, and we still had a presence in Belgium, and then um, then our headquarters moved to America. Uh, an American was elected superior. He moved the headquarters to New York, which is where most of our guys were from at that point. And um, anyway, so we were mostly American. And then when we had our kind of crisis in the late 50s, the last of the Europeans left. And so we ended up just being American. Um, but we went through a crisis. We had almost everybody leave. We went from over 100 men to uh, nine in the course of about a year. And, wow. uh, and then through deaths down to six. And then we started getting vocations again. So... We had uh, a faithful few who stuck with the order and, um, you know, were just stayed faithful to what we were about. And, and eventually the Holy Spirit started bringing vocations back. That's amazing. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. There is even more to be shared from this interview, and that will appear in upcoming episodes. So be sure to stay tuned. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Be sure to share what you have found with others. If you would like to donate or discover more about the featured religious order, check out the show notes for a link to their website. If you have a religious order who you think would make a great feature for this podcast, or if you have any questions about religious life that you would like for me to address, you can find my contact in the episode notes. 
or you can visit my webpage at consecrated.podbean.com. I hope that you will join us for the next episode, which will be released in two weeks.